Thanks for tuning in to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Just this week, as we're recording a new post published on the Duke Research blog, stating that political polarization is apparently increasing faster in the U.S. than in other democracies. And while most Americans agree that polarization is a problem, also 80% believe the opposing political party poses a threat and if not stop, will destroy America as we know it. So what can we do about all this? Because it's polarization that leads to outcomes such as individuals being impervious to evidence that goes against our beliefs or selectively pro-science, as it's stated in this blog post. One of the things I found really interesting as preparing for this interview were actually the, the definitions of polarization that come from physics. And I thought they were really enlightening as far as when we think about political polarization, one of which from Oxford languages is the action of restricting the vibrations of a transverse wave, especially light, wholly or partially to one direction. So light being that which illuminates, basically polarization restricts a thriving, vibrant illumination to only one side or the other of the spectrum. We're not learning from each other. We're not being illuminated. Another is the action of causing something to acquire polarity. So it's not just the fact that we are polarized, but it's the actions we continue to take that actively cause us to continue being polarized. Of course, that's scientific in nature, and we're talking about social sciences here, but I think it's all relevant. Our guests today are Michelle Blanchett and Brian Dieters, and they are the authors of the book, Preventing Polarization, 50 Strategies for Teaching Kids About Empathy, Responsibility, and Political Responsibility. The book is published by Times 10 Publications. Michelle and Brian, welcome to The Authority. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to get into this discussion that we both feel so passionate about. So appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We're excited to be here. It's, it's great to have you both. And to kick this one off, I wanted to give you a chance, each of you, and we'll start with Michelle to talk about your experience and what led you to wanting to write this book and how it came about. I think a lot of our listeners probably can ascertain from from their experience, why this is an important and timely book. But of course, uh, you two are the ones who wrote it. So I'd love to hear what really brought you together on this and motivated you to put this book together. Sure. So I actually started my teaching career in Virginia as a social studies teacher. One of my, I think it was the first or second year I, I keep swapping. One year was world history and the other was civics. And so we've had, I've had experience teaching civics in the U.S. Brian and I actually met as teachers in Switzerland at College du Mall, we were both social studies teachers. We connected clearly over that, but even more, so, I think we connected as Americans who both returned back to the U.S. to a very divided America. And having having taught civics ourselves, it was shocking to see just adults in your network, whether it was in your neighborhood or your family, there were social media debates and so on, where you're watching people just just fight and just have these really unproductive conversations about the issues that are happening in our society. And being teachers, we have got to do something because it, when civics is taught this way, or just social studies in general, it's our goal to teach kids to be critical thinkers, to communicate well with one another, to tolerate perspectives, to be able to explore issues and understand which sources are valid. And we are just watching a whole network of adults not be able they, to they're just not displaying these skills. We both connected around that. We wanted to do something. And that's what inspired 
at least from my end, asked to write this book. Yeah. And to kind of go off of what Michelle said, it, it was a process, right? So we met somewhere around 2014, 20, 2013, and polarization was definitely an issue, right? But in our country, we had just, a, as Michelle was saying, just a different look at it than I think a lot of even our colleagues back here in the United States, because we were perched in Europe and seeing things differently. I think for me, getting into the 2016 election is really when I started to feel um, just com compelled to act beyond just being in the classroom. By that point, I was getting ready to move back to the United States. We were in Switzerland for my wife's job. So I was looking for something to do. It inspired me to run for Congress in the 18th congressional district of Illinois here, which was an experience in itself. But really, when I think back on that, really what was fueling that was this huge concern of us just not getting along at all and the detriment to that. So I have to give Michelle the credit for getting this particular project going because we kept in touch and she's like, we need to do a book. So she had published mm -hmm. before. And next thing you know, we were on this, what was it, Michelle, maybe two year journey of collecting her thoughts, collecting her notes, working through our experiences. And we're proud of, proud of what we've developed. And we're hoping that we can get it in the hands of as many teachers and parents as possible. And another thing that, you know, that's so challenging sometimes, Michelle, is oftentimes it's nearly impossible to anticipate what may be polarizing or what somebody may turn into a polarizing issue. One of the headlines on the website about the book, social emotional learning meets civic engagement. And having been in education for a long time, right? I think people inside of schools wouldn't would say, okay, I get what that means. And yet a couple of years ago, I believe it was in the Wisconsin state legislature, <laughs> certain legislators introduced a several pages long list of terms that they wanted to ban in schools and social emotional learning was right there on the list. And a lot of them weren't horrendously surprising. We may completely disagree with it, but it was like, okay, these are the terms that they're, they're using for political division, SEL, like how, what's wrong with this? And so even just being able to have a open discourse with no intention toward polarization can lead to folks retreating to their corners. So I kind of wanted to start off our conversation with the mindset question and the mindset required to engage in this work, to have, of course, open-mindedness, but to come to this and say, look, let's maybe set aside some of those preconceptions or the different terms and terminologies that we've been taught to believe are partisan or politically motivated. And let's just dive into it and talk about it and have the patience maybe to get where we want to be. But I'd like to hear your view on if you're speaking to educators and, and of course, parents and students are all involved in these conversations to say, all right, this is sort of the attitude you want to bring to starting this process of alleviating polarization. Well, I mean, for the first thing I might say is there's no right answer to this. This is what I would call a wicked problem. It's a heavy problem. Mm -hmm. It's it, it touches upon many different aspects of our lives. So all we can do is try something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we each accept that we are responsible and should hold ourselves accountable to try to make things better. Because ultimately, the purpose of policy, I think, is to shape our world. And what is the type of world we want to shape? And I think sometimes when we talk 
about politics. It's a word that's used very negatively. Really, the purpose of the government is just to shape our infrastructure and the institutions that we have so that it's working for us. And if we don't like how it's working for us, we should be able to talk about it so that it does a better job of working for us. And I think we need to remember the purpose of the government, whether we like what it's doing or not. When we remember the goals of that, we can be a bit more open-minded and understand the value we have in contributing towards our democracy working. I think the other thing we need to keep in mind is our goals. When I talk about issues, it's because I'm personally thinking about the actions I'm taking now and the type of world I want my children to inherit. And I think when we all can take that step back and think about the type of world we want for our kids... Most people agree they want a world where their children are safe and can have jobs and can still appreciate the nature around them. And when we think about this and the goals that we have, I think then people can be more open towards how we achieve those goals. And so I think a lot of what we're doing right now is not taking that step back to reflect on like, A, what is the purpose of our government? B, how are we actively contributing so it it, it works for in our favor? And see, what do we want the government to do, like, if it's not working? And usually that takes into account the goals that we have for future generations and if we're setting them up for what we might view as success. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so Brian, in the subtitle of the book, 50 Strategies for Teaching Kids About Empathy, Responsibility, and Political Responsibility, I... I don't think it's a coincidence that empathy is the first word in that sequence. And, but I also, I think it's a really important term to understand. And it's one that perhaps, especially with respect to this question of political polarization is a little bit misunderstood that empathy doesn't mean agreeing with someone's opinion, but it's agreeing with their humanity, right? It's agreeing with their right to have an opinion and their right to be heard out or to want to at least put yourself in their shoes and tend to understand them understand why they think what they think so that you can, if you do disagree, productively discuss that. But why to you was empathy such an important piece of this to really call out at the top? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. When you think about empathy, I think this is even more cultural than it is institutional with our government structure. And it has everything to do with with our social media, with our media, with the reality that we are in a place where we're so tribal. Our politics have become a blood sport in that sense. And it's gotten to the point where it doesn't really matter what you're worried about with policies. It's just about making sure you win over the other team. And I found it interesting when you were talking about the scientific definition of polarization, like that fits perfectly, right? Because it's such a snowballing situation that we have at hand. And we as teachers in the trenches, if you will, have to create a situation where our young people you know, high school, middle age, but even elementary students realize that we're all coming from different places. And what Michelle was saying is right on. We really all want at the end of the day, what's best for our kids moving forward for a healthy environment. But the structures of our institutions and our cultural institutions with that aren't allowing that. So much of what we put in our skills has to do with this notion of trying to get people to understand you don't have to agree with what somebody is thinking, but you have to understand where they're coming from and try to find ways to respect that in order for us to be functional. Yeah. I think many of us are probably can think of examples of when we've seen intended empathy gone wrong, so to speak, or, or where potentially those who are inclined 
to try to get to the bottom of polarization are disadvantaged because they maybe even miss try to misapply this. And what I guess that leads me to the question of, can we have empathy and still call out destructive attitudes and say, one of the chapters in the book is about avoiding censorship and producing critical thinkers through a variety of outlets, voices, and materials, and being able to hear out others' perspectives and have them explain themselves, but also not just give an open platform to say whatever about whomever and really and say, look, it is a dialogue, right? Like you have the right to explain yourself and I have the right to explain my perspective on that. And I, I wonder what you think about that. And also if, if that is something that people really seem to struggle with those newspaper articles about, okay, we got, we wanted to get to the bottom of what these people think of them, but it's just, then it's just presented from that perspective. <laughs> it's okay. But what about the other side of this, or even these ideas around self-censorship and thinking about, okay, I'm not going to say what I think because I'm in an environment where everybody doesn't agree with me. And then we're just one way or another filtering out part of the dialogue and it ends up being polarized in one way or another. Brian, just following up on the previous question, how, how do you see empathy functioning in that regard where it's, yes, I'm extending empathy to you. What you're saying to me is something that I also need to respond to. That's just the, that's such a huge issue. And Michelle and I talk about this a lot. I think culturally speaking in the United States, I think we can all think of our own experiences. We've been raised to kind of make sure we're not being offensive, make sure that you might hear the expression, we don't want to talk about religion and politics. And as a result, we have this trepidation to really, you kind of spark a card when you said that to me, or when you just made that comment, because we do feel somewhat of, a, of afraid. We feel afraid to speak our mind because we're just worried that we're going to get trampled on. And the atmosphere that we have on our platforms with the algorithms of social media, with politicians taking advantage of that, is only just building that inertia to the problem. And so the vast majority of Americans feel this isn't worth it. When I was talking about how I ran for Congress, that was the thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. I was remember reading a post on Facebook and one of my colleagues back here in the United States was saying, there's nothing we can do about all this anyway. People don't understand my angle. They don't want to understand my angle. So we just have to just worry about ourselves. And I was like, this has to stop. So it motivated me to run. It motivated us to get involved with this book. But it really goes down to what Michelle and I are trying to do in this book is to get kids to realize that it takes skill, right? This is something that requires us to, as we've mentioned here already today, have humility, really work on understanding that Everybody is coming from a place from their institutions. I had a student the other day, I do this debate in my class, in my civics class, and the student was disappointed because the role that they got to, they were asked to take on was one as a moderate left candidate. And the kid's words to me was, man, I was doing my research and this is going to be hard because everybody knows what everything the liberals say is so stupid. And this is a 15 year old kid who's clearly just getting this statement in their mind because of everything that's been around them. So it's a massive problem and we, we, but we can't quit on it. We have to keep moving forward. And our book is all about that. So. Yeah. And relatedly, Michelle, and I'm sure from both of you, from having spent time abroad in a different political culture and a different media climate, there may be things that stand out as well to this idea of in this day and age with even the way television works and certainly it, the internet and what it, you know, it's 
very easy for people to avoid ever confronting any perspectives that are the opposite of their own, right? And so even just not really having any understanding of where it comes from, and that certainly supports us becoming maybe more entrenched in our own opinions, or just thinking that it's, it would make no sense that anybody would have any opinion other than ours, because we've never heard of I've heard of that. It seems super foreign. And then it makes it really extremely difficult to know how to start to, to bridge those divides and have that construction because we don't know where people are coming from. So I don't know if you've observed from being in different environments there about, you know, what happens when we're maybe in a climate where we are, we're more used to having exposure to a diversity of opinions versus when we're able to basically opt out of having to ever be exposed to anybody else's opinion. So. There's kind of a lot to unpack here. So number one, with empathy, having empathy does not mean you need to agree with people. You can mm -hmm. still try to understand, see where they're coming from. And we have this whole chapter as well about moral ambiguity. There's plenty of ethical dilemmas out there where both people can be right. So to be able to understand someone else's perspective and empathize with it does not mean you need to agree with it, number one. Number two, I think tolerating other people's perspectives it almost sounds like we're giving a face to certain things. If, it, if we're actually discussing an issue, there's no face. It's an issue. So, I, I mean, Switzerland's one of the few places with, I think it's the only place with a direct democracy still. But for instance, if they have a vocation, so just a little background, I guess, if people aren't familiar, if something, if a policy is passed and people don't agree with it, they can get X amount of signatures. If that's achieved, there is a votation in which the general public will vote to yay or nay a certain piece of legislation. So, for instance, if it is on ensuring that all new construction has some kind of stipulation that they must provide a renewable energy source in that new construction, people can vote on that. So when we're talking about empathy and hearing people's views, people's views are going to be on that issue. It's not going to have a face. And I think part of the reason we have so much polarization in, in, in the U.S. is, as Brian said, this tribalism, which in sociology is referring to the, the various social groups we might attach ourselves to. And the things we've almost developed a team mentality. Like my husband is Swiss and he was in the U.S. and he's like, isn't it funny that if you drive a hybrid, you're probably a liberal. And if you drive like a, an F-150, if I'm saying that truck right. It's almost like we're dressing the part. Like he found this fascinating. He was just like, you shouldn't know, by the way, someone does certain things, what political party they might affiliate themselves to. That means we're so far from even looking at the issues. We're literally just trying to give ourselves an identity and attach ourselves with people. So I think when we talk about empathy, I mean, there's just a lot to unpack here because we've overly complicated this. So if somebody's just spouting things on social media and it has nothing to do with anything, why would you even engage with this person? If somebody really wants to discuss politics, they are going to come up with an issue because they have a goal and they want to solve something. And so I think that's one thing that we can already start doing, too, is why are you trying to change certain people's opinions? If somebody just wants to sit on their soapbox and spout nonsense, why give them the power? I think that for me is a striking difference between the U.S. and he, and for me here is usually if I'm in a political discussion, we're discussing issues. If right. I'm in a, I'm air quoting, political discussion in the U.S., sometimes it's just people like 
oh, I like this politician, but there's no reason why, really. It's more of like a personality contest or mm-hmm. some people say they're talking about politics, but I just hear nothing of substance. It's just this party or that party or Brian, go on. Yeah, no, just real quick, Michelle, what you just said was great because we have personalities always a huge part of politics everywhere, of course, but it has become such a focal point in our system. And why is that? And we mentioned this in the book, and Michelle and I have talked about this on a lot of other shows we've done. We have a binary system, for better or for worse, since the implementation of our constitution and the establishment of the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and the development of these parties, we've become a two-party government. And so it's the red team or the blue team. And so it's created an atmosphere. It's setting up there. That's that atmosphere. And if you're not careful, then the personalities are going to take over. And I think we all recognize that in many ways that's that has happened. So just wanted to add to that. And Michelle, you had mentioned the moral ambiguity concept, and that's part of the book as well as engaging in moral ambiguity, ditching the good guy versus bad guy outlook. And of course, a two-party system lends itself to that. Okay. I'm on this side. The people who are on this side are good guys. And, and instead of talking about issues and saying, okay, we're all What we all have in common is that we're all people (laughs) and so there's individual issues. It's less about that. And it almost made me think of a term, I I might be making the term up, but like this moral isolationism, that kind of embracing the moral ambiguity means having the belief that each person has a certain morality that guides them and each person is attempting to take actions that they believe are in line with their values. And that sometimes people may unintentionally even take actions that lead to outcomes that are not necessarily consistent with what their values are. But if we at least attempt to understand what those values are, then we could maybe have a discussion about, well, think about this and how does that match up? And when I say like isolationism, it's the, it's also the point of folks having blinders on and tunnel vision toward this is what I believe. These are my morals. And I'm only going to do things that I think are shaping society in the way that I believe it should be and not taking into account how that infringes upon maybe others ability to live out their morals or their values. That's a complicated interplay, of course, in politics, but I'm sure we could all think of some of the biggest issues in political debate and understand how, okay, seeing this issue through with pure tunnel vision is directly intruding on what somebody else might believe. And there might be other compromised positions where nobody is forced to compromise their morals, but they're changing some of the way they live them out because they're understanding the consequences creating for others. But Michelle, I wanted to open it up to talk a little bit more about this moral ambiguity. And one, I think what makes this thing for people beyond just, okay, of course we have a habit of dividing into teams here and when it's us versus you. And now I no longer see the other team as people with a variety of perspectives, but also being able to, I think, yeah, have that supposition that the values and morals that this person has are something from strictly their actions. And we might not even all recognize how, okay, I, I didn't realize that I was actually creating an outcome that now it yeah is against the morals that I have, but we can't have that conversation until we believe that about each other. I think, yeah, we added this section because I think also when we don't see each, the other side as evil, again, in kind of an air quote, mm-hmm. uh, we're more likely to be able to communicate. And I think most people, I think we actually have more in common than we think. And just to give an example, let's say part of you, you value nature. 
you care about your carbon footprints, you're really into this. So someone asked you about recycling. If you were to put, I don't recycle, people would immediately, if you were to just post this, like, how can you not recycle? You're a horrible person. This is going against your values, blah, 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 blah. But if you actually ask the person why, they might say, I actually discovered that my county isn't recycling. I think decades ago, other countries stopped buying our recyclables. We don't have enough places to put them. And so actually, it's just extra trash and it's going to landfills. I've decided actually to be zero waste. I've actually decided recycling is not the way to go. But you would never know this unless you asked the person and you dug a little bit deeper. And I feel like right now we have, especially in social media, I think really amplifies this. But even during a conversation... I think we're just so quick to just judge people or just assume things that aren't there. And we don't actually dig further into why, like, why are you making these decisions? Why is this important to you or not? Why do you feel this is a bad thing or not? And I think if we were just a little bit more tolerant with one another and maybe assume the best that people do have good intentions, it would help us to embrace this moral ambiguity. Because usually, from what I've noticed, when I ask people why they they do saying that, for instance, with students, I don't assume they're bad. I want to know why they're doing it. And that's, you know, it's part of my job, too, is to get them to express themselves and to think deeply about their actions and why they do the things they do and whatnot. And sometimes it's an, a matter of giving them that space of going through this metacognitive process of really thinking about their actions and like connecting the dots towards what they believe in. And other times it's just hearing each other as well, like why people think certain things and it opens up their worldview on like, just because my parents maybe told me this or I learned this at home or this on social media or wherever they learned something, there's actually more than one way to think about certain issues and to live some of those values as well. So I think that for me, that's my starting point with this moral ambiguity of just not making those assumptions and then just listening to people and asking them. Yeah, I think there was something mentioned about you know, a, a desire to think about things in terms of the greater good or how they're impacting society. And part of that, an example in the direct democracy may be, okay, there was an issue and I voted one way, but 90% of the people voted the other way. Like, is it part of my value system that I want to be in a place that honors, you know, okay, most people clearly feel this way and I might not, it might be for the greater good that we are operating a court, you know, that I don't need to win again in the American political system. It's hard for people to wrap their heads around because of all the strange, weird things that we have between the electoral college and everything else and the way political power is wielded, that there is this incentive to fight to win at all costs, even when you're clearly not representing the majority perspective, right? And some of the key issues that continue to be fought in the courts and everywhere else. Yeah. So Michelle, you have something to add as well. Yeah. I just, you had mentioned before something about in Wisconsin, the term social emotional learning mm -hmm. being banned. Yep. And I've found it interesting because I've seen more and more people talking about just teach the curriculum with civics. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned things like the Electoral College or, for instance, when you talk to students about running the presidential campaigns and how much they cost and then mm -hmm. the power of lobbies and Citizen Unite, when they start to see where money comes from, you usually get upset. And so right. what I mean is when you break down social emotional learning, people tend to not disagree as much. Most people want students to be able to regulate or to make responsible decisions and so on. And kids are not robots. And so I've always found it interesting, this concept of, well, just teach the curriculum. 
Students tend to get upset when they learn about how our government functions. If you don't like that, that's not the teacher's fault. So I think it's really important as well, just to, I just mean, I wanted to add that little piece in because kids do feel these things, not just with the issues, but in the way our own government functions. And that's a part of the civics process that we need to embrace, be realistic with when we talk about a civics education. Right. And what's perhaps the number one question people would ask when they're polling a politician's favorability is, do I believe this person cares about people like me? That's empathy, social and emotional right there. And that's what people care about. But ultimately, unfortunately, sometimes semantics get in the way of that. But Brian, you had more to add as well. Yeah, no, I was just thinking when she was talking about things that make students upset, like electoral college. If you want an anger, a, a, a sophomore, a 10th grader in high school, just show them just different gerrymandered maps throughout the yeah, right. country. And they're like, what is this? I'm like, yeah, so let's learn about this. How does this work? Yeah. I just kind of wanted to add that too, because it all speaks to, so, to SEL, right? It all speaks to this aspect of what we do and, and what we need to promote in the classroom. But let's face it, this terminology, it has become, it's just, it's become a term that's just used as a moral panic, largely mm-hmm. for, for the right and for conservative media to, to make it part of that SEL learning is all part of this effort by liberals to dissolve what we view as the traditional right way to live. And that's, of course, just falling into the trap of everything we've just been talking about here today, that it's so much more complex than that. But our system is set up and our media takes, is benefiting off of that, what I like to call bumper sticker politics. Yeah. And even just learning how to channel things that we're frustrated by and the things that we want to see into something productive and positive and how to build a coalition around that. That's all like social and emotional skills of all the things by any other name. But Brian, with one of the concepts that I think, in my opinion, may be the most difficult for a lot of people to in this climate is embrace complex and to stop oversimplifying difficult issues where I think in so many parts of society we're incentivized to do the opposite whether it's in marketing, product marketing and saying, I need a straightforward, simple message. I don't need to know all the details. And certainly in politics where, you know, I, you, you, there's almost a polarization that might cut across party lines between the politicians who eschew complexity and say, look, I'm going to come with a straightforward message that people can understand. And the others who are unwilling to do that and are saying there's more to this. And the, But you can see how a lot of times those folks who really do want to acknowledge the complexity to acknowledge that there are different POVs, that there's moral ambiguity get shut out because it's not, it's not being necessarily rewarded by, by the electorate, even though many of us might understand and say, yeah, I would like for my decision makers to be operating based on taking in the full range of information, but that's not what's coming out. So I, you know, I, when you think about this one, where do you find it ranks among difficulty? I think of all these concepts and how to start at the, really at the grassroots, right? Because I, I think this is one that definitely if younger generations want to go with it and stick to it, it can gain a foothold, but it's not necessarily the thing that we learn many years down the road when we've been oversimplifying everything for 40 years. And now all of a sudden I want to, to embrace complexity that might not happen as much. Well, this is to the core of our book. This is this speaks to advocating for civic mindedness, right? We know so many adults that just don't have that ability to really understand our structures in general, but certainly the complexity. 
look at something even as controversial, arguably the most controversial issue that we have in our society, particularly since the summer, the abortion issue. Um, there is such a complex issue, but it is presented in a manner that is simplified. It's a formula that from the right, this, it's, it's, we're pro-life. And from the left, it's changing the wordage and saying that we're pro-choice. And the reason I bring that up example is in this debate I was talking about earlier, one of the students was talking about the issue of abortion in our debate. So we do get into the heavy issues. This was with high school kids and it's done in a simulated manner. But the comment of the student made it clear to me that their view of a more kind of liberal-minded view of abortion is that people on the left are pro-abortion. <laughs> it just got me thinking, of course, that's not at all the case. It's not like People in America are wanting to see babies aborted, that it has, there's so many layers to this, but it's not presented in that way. And it's very clear to see that when you see kids responding to something like gun control is another issue. Poll after poll would see, tells you that 90 some Amer percent of Americans when polled want stricter background checks on making sure the guns don't get into the hands of people that shouldn't have them, but yet we can't get legislation passed. And why is that? People are digging into the why a little bit. They're not getting into some of the special interest influence. And so if we become civic-minded, which our book talks about giving these strategies to help with, hopefully that starts to break down the layer because you hit it on the nose. It's, it's at the grassroots. The politicians aren't going to change until the electorate forces them to change. Yeah, and, and then certainly in these answers, I think it's really clear that it embracing complexity and engaging in moral ambiguity are so closely related, right? Because both of them, the desire to oversimplify things is the same as the desire to claim the moral high ground so that we don't have to engage with an opposing position and say, look, I hold my position on this issue because it's, you know, it's the morally right thing to do. And anybody who says anything different obviously has to be immoral because they're disagreeing with me. And now I don't have to really think about how my position affects others and how there are shades of gray. And there's a lot of nuances and there are things in, in, in political thought that ha you have to understand that well-intentioned things don't work for everybody. Or sometimes there are just like, whether it's unintended consequences or whether it's just understanding that individual autonomy sometimes is a better way to go. One of the things you write about as well, which I think is important to define, is strategies that promote consensus building. Given all of what we've talked about, Michelle, how do you define consensus and the types of the type of consensus that we're wanting to build? And then what are a few of those strategies that work toward that? So in order to build consensus, you need a goal. So for instance, how do we provide quality healthcare to all? This is really complicated. We might look at what we're doing, but the only way to have consensus is by having a goal of something that you want to achieve. So I think sometimes when we talk about a lot of the issues and we talk about preventing polarization, kids need to practice with exactly what we just talked about. So for instance, with something like abortion, kids aren't necessarily going to solve that in class. They're not. But if we want them to embrace complexity or practice being able to discuss like what's the right thing to do in terms of abortion in our country, then we can practice consensus building because we've given them a question to work together. And so, for instance, when kids and it takes something like abortion, when kids start to see the complexity, like I think, number one, what are some of the misconceptions behind it? I think if you look at data, most women who get abortion tend to be married and have insurance. And so, for instance, what just passed, we just 
caused a lot of people to pay a lot of extra money to just go to different states to get an abortion. Can you really stop abortion? Will it just go underground? Also, things like Planned Parenthood, which, you know, will have this evil name. When students learn about the amount of health care that women get, because health care is so expensive in the U.S., and how many times it's prevented cancer or whatnot, then they're shocked because they're like, I thought Planned Parenthood was just for this. I didn't realize that it was actually giving access to a lot of women in our country who don't have health care, this option, because it doesn't exist. And then also, too, if you talk about pro-life, if I talk about a baby who's on a migrant boat coming to Florida, what do we do with that baby? Is saving that child and integrating it in our country pro-life? And then so just using these terms and helping kids to explore a lot of these different issues They'll come up with their own answers, but I think what's good and what we can do as educators is give them a wide variety of questions and sources so that they explore the issue. Because what makes it too simple is saying, I'm pro-choice, I am pro-life. That, that's bumper sticker. Let's get into the complexity of something, because what's the direction we should take on abortion in our country? And let them explore from a variety of different perspectives and sources all the impl- implications of some of the decisions that we make at a policy level. And so for me, that is what consensus building is. Take an issue, but make a goal out of it, something where kids need to find an agreement among the class. And then it's not going to be perfect, but and then have them explore that issue from a variety of different ways. So they kind of understand like what we should or ought to be doing or the things to think about. And I think when we prepare students this way, they're more likely to have these thoughtful conversations with adults. They're more likely to notice, for instance, if someone's giving kind of a fluffy campaign with no substance because they know to look deeper and to ask questions and to identify if there isn't a goal or if there isn't a purpose to some of the things that we're discussing. A couple of questions I wanted to ask you both before we wrapped up. One is, do you have a recommendation for a good book or a piece of media to discuss with students, to, to view it together or to go through it together and talk about it with respect to starting to address issues of polarization and any that you might recommend in that regard and kind of how that functions? Uh, Brian, do you want to maybe start with that? And uh, Brian, do you want to maybe start with that? So with regards to the question about sites to go particularly at the age that I'm teaching at the high school level, there is something called the flip side, which is something that comes out daily that kind of looks at an issue and has different statements from more conservative media versus more liberal media that my students will look at and will discuss. I just talk about making sure they're going to sources that have the reputation of newsworthiness that are being held accountable for what it is that they're putting out there. And that's something that at least at the high school level, kids are starting to get more reflective on that as such an important thing to do. And that has everything to do with the fact that so much of what they're getting for their information is social media based, mm-hmm. how problematic that could potentially be. So just being versed on just making sure you're going to a credit source, regardless of what it is. Does anything come to mind for you, Michelle? One of the things, and it might not be exactly related, that comes to mind is for me, we don't get to pick where our students consume their information. So I think we're having to get more and more creative on how we help students who are getting their opinions from TikTok and Instagram and whatnot. And Brian have had this chat where we're like, is the meme the modern day political cartoon? Because I was, I think I was really... I'll, I shouldn't be shocked, but I was still 
Jack, after the invasion in Ukraine, I was blown away by the amount I had gone on Facebook, the amount of people that summarized the entire invasion with a, a meme. And I'm like, if they really think that this is like just this simplified meme really covers why this invasion has to do next. And I'm like, we're really in a bad place. And so I think I think we should just do a better job of kind of recognizing where our kids are getting their information and maybe have them come in and share. Like, where did you find that out from? Where made you form this opinion? Was there a video to watch? And help kids to dissect some of the things that they're watching. I, I, for me, I think it would be good to to provide kids more of an outlet to bring in these things that they're sharing and really explore and examine how incredible they are. It's just, I, th- I think this is a thing where it's hard. I don't know if there's an exact site. I know PBS does a lot with media literacy and they have a certificate that might be good for educators who want to dig deeper into more strategies with this. But I think because of school rules as well with what technology we can and can't use in the classroom, it's becoming even harder for us to help our students tackle misinformation because oftentimes we're not allowed to use the very platforms where they're consuming the most. It's a bit of a conundrum. I'm not quite sure how to solve it, but I do think that we should be mindful of that. And I think it's worthwhile to offer a space on how we might get creative in tackling that. And it's certainly true that between internet algorithms and memes, it has not, once again, not incentivized embracing complexity. And and I find myself in that space a lot of times where I have something that I, you know, is kind of a catchy, interesting idea. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm not going to put it out there because, well, there's this other thing and this other thing. And as a result, I don't have hundreds of thousands of followers. But the point is like, it's because there things are more complicated and sometimes you can be persuasive by leaving selective facts out. But the reality is, yeah, a lot of times too, just like you said, bringing in media that kids are interested in and discussing it, things that, uh, at the very least they don't know are supposed to be polarized or aren't necessarily polarized, right? Where it hasn't yet been infected by the ask parents, do we want schools to teach life skills? And they say, yes. And do you want to teach social emotional learning? Now, a lot of them say, no, that's, that's bad because of this, this, and that. Well, actually it's the same thing. It's just two different words for it. Right. And it's those, those things that prevent us from having those discussions, terminologies or pieces of media become polarized for one reason or another. And then we can't just have a, a good discussion. And, and I also wanted to ask for our listener, you know, do you have other book other than your own that you find useful in this regard for educators to check out? It doesn't have to be explicitly about polarization, but just about this type of thinking around teaching civic engagement and politics and, and navigating a very challenging climate around that. Because certainly, once again, while maybe most people would say they, they wish there was less polarization, that's not necessarily the way that our governing bodies act. <laughs> and sometimes even just being able to have those honest discussions about the way art works and civics and all of that become co-opted and by political debates. And it's hard to even have that. So I think any resources in that regard are also helpful for educators. Just think about how can I really teach what needs to be taught in a way that is not going to be construed as something that it's not, but really anything. It could be on a completely different topic, just a book you think is good. But <laughs> Michelle, I think we'll start with you and then Brian on this one. 
If you want just a book, I think is good. I read a book called Humanity. I remember in my undergrad, I feel like it's like lover it's somewhere up here looking back at my shelf, but it was just a really comprehensive book. History kind of taught through the lens of when we valued humanity and when we haven't. I think one thing that's interesting for both Brian and I, we both taught sociology before, which is the study of, of systems. So when you look at like the sociology of poverty or war or crime, I think it helps teach like a more inclusive version of history so that people identify patterns and what's happening. And so for me, if I were to look at like kind of sociology of war, there are certain things that are happening right now that are disturbing to me. So for instance, I think in the U.S., this sort of, I don't want to say complete downfall, but this kind of attack on our free press and the established news sources that we have, this is dangerous. If you look at patterns throughout history, you see this as a common ingredient towards bad things. I think anti-intellectualism, you have the book burnings of the past and not believing in experts anymore and whatnot. And this tends to be another bad ingredient, if you will. And so anyways, I think digging into books about humanity, sociology, I think are good because they provide a nice way to talk about issues without necessarily talking about what happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a better way. I think, for instance, when I usually let students pick chapters, they love the sociology of crime. They all tend to gravitate towards that one. It was really interesting to me to see this backlash on, on critical race theory in the U.S. When I had done the sociology of crime, it's very evident for all students if they look at uh, prison rates and who goes to jail for what this systemic look on, hey, maybe things aren't quite fair there. And anyways, that's something I might advise is just digging into some other areas. I think sometimes when we were like, oh, civics, usually if I get a civics books, they're, they're, some are really great. I see a lot with active citizenship, which is, a, I think, another one of those polarized words right now because some people don't like active citizenship and whatnot. But it tends to really focus on here are the three branches of government. That, that body of civics we were talking about. And I, do, I feel like a lot of civics books ignore the, the, this emotional piece. And I, it, like you said, I don't care if you call it social emotional learning, if you want to call it soft skills, but this emotional piece exists. So I think it's almost better. I, I feel like on, when I go online, I see a lot with, I think there's icivics.net, Romac to Democracy. There's a lot of resources out there. Civics is getting a big push again. So there's definitely a lot of teachers and networks that are trying to rethink how we go about civics, how we go about history and whatnot. Uh, Generation Citizen is really interesting, I think, or it, it, there's Next Gen Citizen as well. It, honestly, there's such an overload. It's almost hard to to navigate directly towards one or the other. I think it was Generation Citizens, though, where they actually work with kids. We had done a podcast with them and it was wonderful to talk with students and student run PBS as well. They have student reporting labs, which is getting kids out there and doing their own kind of journalism. There's a lot of creative ways. I've been talking more to museums, History Collab, President Lincoln's Cottage. They're working to gamify learning experience so students get to explore issues in a more immersive way. So yeah, there's a lot. My, I think when you asked this question, my brain went in a thousand different directions. So hopefully that was somewhat coherent. You have any in mind, Brian? Yeah, just keep it short. I'm reading, and there was Light Right Now by John Meacham, which is a history book about Lincoln and his efforts to basically save the union. And so maybe that's a hopeful book that we've been down this path before. 
hopefully it was a worse time for polarization because we all know what happened with regards to the Civil War. But this book is a book that does present itself in a way that uh, there are good people out there. There are good leaders out there. And there are people that want to do the right thing for us to preserve our democracy and move us forward. So that would be one that I would recommend. I've been enjoying it. Thank you both for being on The Authority, listeners. You can find the links below for the book, Preventing Polarization. There's preventingpolarization.com. You can also get it from Times 10 Publications. You can subscribe to The Authority for more author interviews such as this one or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Michelle and Brian, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ross. It was a pleasure.